Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Throughout the history of motorsport, the drivers have been on the front line of racing. But often, their performance depends entirely on a group of engineers. In a special podcast series, we are going to speak to the likes of Adrian Newey, Patrick Head and Gordon Murray about what it takes to engineer the greatest drivers in the history of our sport. Not only will we look at some of the groundbreaking technology they brought to Formula One, but we will delve into the minds of the best drivers the sport has seen. We hope you enjoy the series, Engineering Formula One's Drivers. Hello everyone and welcome to the Motorsport Magazine podcast. We've got another one today in Engineering Formula One's Drivers series and we are joined by John Barnard and Editor-at-Large, Simon Aaron. Simon, thank you very much for joining us. And John, thank you so much for coming into our, our humble offices here on the Finchley Road. You're most welcome. Now we've got, we've got lots to get through um, and I wanted to sort of rewind right back to the start for you because your sort of your first job, I think, yep. was with the General Electric Company. Well, it was, I was a student there, actually. Right. So, so it was a kind of sandwich course thing, yeah. But it was nothing to do with motorsport or uh, motor racing? No, it wasn't, no. No, I mean, I was uh, playing around with cars at home all the time. Um, and uh, I think I'd, where was I at that time? I think I'd got to my DB24 at that time, which I then decided to, uh, well, actually, the original Aston engine blew up. And... Uh, Having looked at the price of the bits and pieces, I decided that I ought to go another way. So I found a Chevy V8 and four-speed Borg Warner box and shoehorned that in there, which was uh, lively, very informative and quite, uh, <laughs> yeah, quite quick. <laughs> Most students of my age had minis. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah. That's right. When I say to people, you know, they they, they say, well, you know, well, how old are you? Well, I was 19. I had an Aston Martin. And it was like, what? <laughs> that's what I'm thinking that's now. That's not normal. Um, no, it was, uh, yeah, I mean, I was quite lucky. My parents were, I was an only, and uh, my parents uh, did a good job. Yes. You went you obviously then went on to Lola. Yeah. And we were talking with Patrick Head about how much of a breeding ground yes. Lola was and Very how much. much so many designers and engineers owe to Eric Broadley yeah, for indeed. taking them on. Yeah, no, that's absolutely correct. Uh a few years ago we had a, a there was a Lotus do up in uh London in University College, I think it was, and uh Eric was there and I and I Patrick was there and I was there and, and I said to Eric, you know, I said, you know, Eric I've never really thanked you for the opportunity that you gave us. And, you know, same with Patrick. I mean, he, he's the same as me. We both got our opportunity through Eric. Uh, and, you know, the interview with Eric was you sat down, talked to Eric for an hour, and, and basically if he thought you had the right attitude and, you know, enough basic knowledge, enough uh, engineering knowledge, then, you know, he gave you the job and, and, and that was it. And... Uh, 
nine months after starting at Lola's in Slough then, that was I started in Slough, um, and uh, we he came along one morning and he said, oh, you know, we've got to, there's a new single-seater, we new formula that VW are introducing called Super V, and uh, how would you like to do the car? You know, it's like, what, all of it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that was it. That was the first, first car I did. Looking back at that, it must sadden you when you look at the landscape now and Lola's not there, March isn't there, yeah, Reynolds coming on. It's all, yeah. it's just, the landscape has changed completely, hasn't it? It has, it's changed a lot. Um, but then, you know, everything's changed. Look at Formula One. I mean, you know, I mean, it's, uh, gosh, what a business now. I mean, it's just massive. Uh, it's totally different to when we all started. Well, do, well, I wanted to sort of touch on the regulations in Formula One now in, yeah. in a bit. But when after Lola, you went to McLaren. Yes. Um, was that, I, mean, I know you'd been doing sort of, obviously a lot of, as you mentioned there, a lot of design work at Lola, but was that, was that quite a daunting step up for someone your age? Uh, I don't think it was daunting. Um, it was what I wanted to do. I mean, Lola's had been a fantastic learning curve and we dealt with all sorts of stuff. I mean, you know, we all got involved, although my main thing was doing the small single-seaters. Um, I got involved in two-litre and three-litre sports cars. I got involved in Formula 5000 cars, Can-Am cars. We all, you know, did stuff on, on all of them. And, um, uh, but what we didn't do was Formula One. And uh, although when I went there, they were still producing the indie car um indie cars like the type uh oh, I've forgotten the type now. Come on, Simon. I've forgotten the type <laughs> number. I, I, but yeah. Sixty six was a T ninety, but it, it might have been later than that. Uh, it, it was, yeah, it was this was seventy two Euro McLaren. So sixty eight Lola. Yes, yeah. something like that. So and that stopped. They stopped stopped making those. So it didn't do indie, they didn't do Formula One. And, you know, like everybody, Formula One's the top of the tree and that's, that's where you want to get to. And then I, can't, I really can't remember how I ended up at McLaren. I must have been a lot of inside communication going on. Um, but I just went there one day ha having told, uh, I think it was Robbie Rushbrook at Lowlands. I said, look, Robbie, I'm, you know, I'm, I want to go and do Formula One. I'm sort of, you know, I've got to tell you, I'm, I'm probably going to leave. Oh, you know, he said, oh, that's a great shame, but... Yeah, I understand. And then the next thing I knew, I was talking to Gordon at um, Team McLaren and started there, you know, just, just went in there and started drawing the M23 bits. And uh, and how big was the, I mean, big Gordon Copper in charge, and how, how many yeah, other designers uh, were there? Were, there? Um, there was, there was uh, Gordon, Dave Quill, Ray Stoko, and then me, uh, and then a little bit after I was there, was a guy called Steve Harvey came, and that was it. That was a that was the drawing office. And was that just just doing Formula One cars, or were you doing all the other McLaren um, cars as well? Well, I ended. I did a a, a Formula Five thousand version of the M twenty three called the M twenty five, which was originally planned for I think it was Trojans to make as a customer mm. car. But I think they discovered that the, the monocoque was too complicated and, you know, would cost too much money to make as a customer car, so, so they didn't, uh, they didn't uh, pursue that. But we made one, and um, Denny, I think, Denny Holm tested it at Silverstone with a Chevy in the back. And, and again, you know, that was... Uh, I did that, and I actually 
did what I think uh, was probably the first and probably only um, semi-stressed um, Chevy engine because I, I redesigned all the water pump casting on the front to actually mount on the back of the monocoque um, somewhat like a Formula One engine and then had some um, lateral tubes below to give it strength down the bottom and bolted it bolted this Chevy onto the back of the, the monocoque and um, and that that seemed to work all right um, but again it was you know I took I, I went off in a new direction um, which unfortunately never got never got the light of day but I uh, never saw the light of day but it was uh, yeah it was, your, Aston, your Aston Chevrolet experience must have, must have stood you in good stead for that, well, surely. It certainly, it, yeah, absolutely. It certainly gave me... It, it certainly, I knew my way around a Chevy block, that's yeah, for yeah, sure. Yeah. <laughs> a, we'll, we'll talk about some of the drivers and people in a second, but just picking up with that, we obviously talked talk to Frank Durney and Patrick Head, and yeah. one of the things we've been asking is where the ideas come from. Yes. And the general consensus has been actually you don't have big, bright ideas. What you're doing is you're solving problems Correct. as a designer. Is that, would you agree with that? Yeah, I mean, most of the time you're solving problems or, uh, in my case, you're looking, for, um, you're looking for a better solution. You know, you, you've got your list of things. You've got, um, uh, you know, you want it light, you want it rigid, um, you want it simple, uh, complicated things invariably have problems associated with them. So you've got your list of bits and pieces. When you're at a place like Lola's, you've got an, the cost comes into that list as well. And uh, you know you can't sell cars for profit if they cost too much to build. So that's part of it. When you move to Formula One, that cost issue drops right down the list. Um, and that's, f from a designer's point of view, that's the that's the nice bit about Formula One. You know, you don't go in thinking, ooh, you know, is that going to cost 500 quid to make or 5,000? Because, you know, if it's better, if it's a little bit lighter and a little bit quicker and a little bit whatever it is, you know, stronger, better aerodynamically, you do it. And, um, and so that's the advantage of, of being in Formula One from a design point of view. The lower aspect is, I should say, uh, is equally as difficult to come up with a solution. You know, it's got to work and it's got to perform, but it can't cost too much. So, yeah, you know, it's just different things to think about. The, the, I'm going to jump in with some of these readers' questions. Um, sort of moving on to the, the drivers and the people. Yeah. Adrian King is asking, which of the drivers that you worked with did you trust the most with their feedback on the car's performance? And which, if any, of the driver's feedback did you have to take with a pinch of salt? Well, I think the guy that jumps out to me is Alan Prost. I mean, his feedback was brilliant for a number of reasons. He seemed to be able to distinguish if there was a tyre problem or a car problem. He could distinguish, uh, you know, with between a tyre performance and a car performance. And he could remember what happened. He could remember four or five races ago when he changed that front roll bar, how the car felt. And he had all this list of things in his head. So when you said to him, you know, how is it, Alan? He said, well, you know, I've got a bit of understeer here. A bit of, okay, should we just go back to the number three bar or something like that on the front? And he said, yeah, where did we run that? Oh, I know, we ran that and so and so. Yeah, yeah, let's do that. Yeah, that, that worked. That's that was the kind of guy. I mean, they called him the professor, and and 
and you know frankly that's why um other guys um well you take a guy like john alesi i mean a, a very quick driver very quick naturally quick driver but um quite uh i would say guided by i suppose the sort of what's going on down the pit lane do you know what i mean uh, i just remember the first time i started i introduced flexures you know what the flexures are on the end of the wishbones instead of instead of ball joints and i made a car with flexures on the front uh wishbones and uh we the car was okay but it wasn't you know it wasn't blindingly quick it was it was a little bit difficult to set up and it was aerodynamically that's what the problem was fundamentally um and this um so it, when he wasn't quick i mean he, he went up and down the pit road and everybody else was still using ball joints you know and i knew the flexure was a superior uh, way of doing it um but i was first and nobody had caught on nobody else had done it and john complained bitterly uh, about oh you know nobody else has got this it can't be any good because nobody else has got it and so we ended up having to modify the car to put ball joints on burger stayed with flexures and a lazy wanted ball joints because it was in his head you know so that's that's the other end of the scale if you know what i mean it, it's and and i think everybody uses flexures now but you know it's <laughs> did, did, did john go any quicker with ball joints uh, no. Thought <laughs> 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 so that might be the answer. There's, there's an interesting thing yesterday actually that Patrick referred to when they were having the tyre blowouts, the Goodyear blowouts in '86. Yeah. And Goodyear said similar thing as well. No one else is having them, so it's got to be your problem. He said, no, 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 we've just got more power and more downforce. Yeah. So we're the we're the point of the arrow. Yeah. You know, yeah. So yeah. Yes, but it's it's interesting that yeah. it, it kind of transfers to drivers that's as right. well. Well, th that's probably true to some extent, but then. You know, they were doing it with power. Uh, power. I think we at McLaren were doing it with um, probably slightly more efficient aerodynamics. Um, but if you take that to the other extreme, like in 1983, um, with our Cosworth-engined uh, uh, MB4 to uh, MB4 one to C, um, we just been to Long Beach. We'd come first and second at Long Beach on Michelin tyres and then we arrived at Monaco and we were like we didn't even get on because in those days they only had 20 cars on the grid and we were like 21 and 22 in, in, in practice and uh, we just couldn't get the tyre to work and the tyre had been designed around the turbocharged Renault so we just couldn't get them going and and in the end we, we convinced uh, Michelin that they had to make us different tyres because we couldn't get them working and between the Thursday which was practice in Monaco and the Friday when we didn't practice they came up with some other tyres and we put them on for the Saturday morning practice and we were like I forget right right up the front with the, with the Cosworth powered car and then just before the qualifying in the afternoon it started to rain yes. <laughs> so that was the end of that so we didn't qualify so we finished one two and then didn't qualify but you know that's how the tire can get you and if you're you know if it's if you're not right in the if it, in the window of the tire did you come across any instances and it doesn't have to be genre lacy where 
a driver's come in and said something and you've told him you've made a change without doing anything at all. Well, and then psychologically, yeah. they're, they're fixed. And no, they're just gonna I, I haven't done that. I always play it straight. Um, but I know engineers that have done and do do that. And uh, one of them worked for me at Ferrari. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he was a very intelligent guy, a very bright guy. I won't name names, but he was a very intelligent guy. And he would do that. He would he would do things or not do things um, and sort of tell the driver, kind of intimate to the driver what to expect. And of course, you know, then the, and if the driver came back and, you know, said, oh yeah, you know, that's, that's doing this or it's doing that. And he'd go, hmm, he doesn't know what he's doing. <laughs> you know, so. <laughs> so, a good litmus test yeah. actually. Yeah. So, so uh, it's okay, but when the driver finds out, then he gets really pissed. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> understandably. Yeah. You were t talking about Alan Prost and there's a question here from Sam Smith, who I think interestingly is a Sam Smith who used to work uh, PR at Lola. So yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, who long now time after me, I'm ahead. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so he was a long time. Yeah. Um, how much of a loss was Prost leaving McLaren for Renault before Ron Dennis and you had a fair crack of the whip? Would have been great to see you all develop together. Yes, it would. And, and well, there are two aspects to it because I remember before Ron and I got involved properly, we attended a couple of races in the States. We attended... Montreal and Watkins Glen with the then team McLaren with Teddy and Tyler and those guys and uh, I remember I just remember uh, one morning breakfast we had breakfast it was Ron myself and Alan we were having breakfast in the hotel and Alan was saying you know I'm, I'm leaving I'm leaving and he, he I can understand it because he, they'd been playing around with the car and they'd done stuff on the car, they'd modified it, put things on that had broken or fallen off and, you know, he was, he was, he'd lost a lot of confidence in the car and the team and he said, oh, I'm leaving, I'm leaving and I remember Ron saying, oh, Alan, you're making a big mistake, you're making a big... He said, you're going to piss blood, he said. <laughs> <laughs> but he left anyway. Um, having said that, it meant that um, you know, we then, our first year of going racing, 1981, as myself, Ron, and, and the, the old team McLaren, um, was, that was the first uh, carbon monocoque. So we were able to kind of go through that year with a bit less pressure, really. Um, we had Watty, John Watson, and we had Andrea de Cesaris. No, he was a rookie. Um, what he was experienced, but um, not the guy that everybody thought was going to set the world alight, if you know what I mean. Whereas Alan was kind of, he was the new, potentially the new young superstar. So um, in a way, it took the pressure off of us a little bit. Um, on the other side, bearing in mind what happened in 81, where we, you know, we finished third, finished second, then we won the British Grand Prix, you just think, yeah, maybe, you know, maybe we'd have been first and second at the British Grand Prix. Who knows, you know, I don't know. But, it, yeah, plus and minus, really. It all works out in the end. And over your career in Formula One um, from, you know, the late 60s all the way, well, early 70s, yeah. all the way through, the tools that you had at your disposal in terms of design but also data and actually yeah. getting feedback on the car changed so dramatically. Did that mean that 
you relied on drivers any less as you sort of as you moved on from you know to Ferrari to Benetton and then set up your own? Well, I'll jump forward a bit because um, I mean, I remember at McLaren the, the second time there, the McLaren International, as it as we called it, uh, and it was nineteen eighty two, eighty three, and I started uh, thinking about onboard monitoring equipment, onboard recording equipment. And I got there, I just employed um, a young um, graduate um, called Bob Bell, who went on to be, you know, a bit of a name. Uh, and I just employed Bob and I said, Bob, I want you to go and look and, you know, find us some monitoring, some recording equipment that we put on the car and start recording. In those days, really, just just knowing the actual ride height of the chassis was really one, something that first thing I wanted to know because you you know you got tire squash and all this kind. We never had all the figures from the tire companies then uh, like they get now. So it wasn't until then that we even talked about having onboard monitoring equipment. Um, and going back, I mean, we even at Lola's, I mean, Peter Wright had set up really crude, really basic wind tunnel that specialised mouldings down the road from Lola's. And we'd thrown in some models of, I remember doing a model of the 260, the Can-Am car that Stuart drove. And, uh, uh, you know, but I mean, the information we got was, I mean, you know, <laughs> not very not very reliable and not very useful. Um, but that was where it started. Going to Team McLaren, I remember doing... Um, I remember taking the full-size car up to Myra at night. We used to run at night up there in their big tunnel. Um, and again, we got we got results, um, but I wouldn't say that it really, you know, it was a start. It was a start to get us to think about wind tunnel testing. I then did, um, kind of on my own really, at Team McLaren, um, together with a factory manager guy called Don Beresford and we found a tunnel down on the Isle of Wight which was a British hovercraft tunnel and uh, it was a reasonable size but it was set up for aircraft so it got a balance in the roof and we ended up building a, a, a kind of a full-size mock-up of the monocoque, the M23 monocoque and behind it we put a rear wing. Um, I think, I don't even know that we had wheels, I mean but it was all mounted upside down on the roof and we were measuring the wing force. And uh, that was where I, I did this single post-mounted wing, which is, I think, the first single post-mounted wing. And the first one I did, um, we took it down there and we ran it and we got this fluctuating stall going on. It was really peculiar. Um, it was, you could see all the flow attached over the wing and suddenly it would break away and you lose about a third of the wing section with turbulence and one of the guys there um, one of the guys running the tunnel he said oh he said that setup he said it looks like the uh, VC10 tail which I think had a tail, uh, tail plane on top of the, 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 the fin the rear um, rear fin and uh, he said they had a problem similar to that I said well, what did they do he said oh they you know did something around the fillet and all the rest of it so I, so I went back and I looked again at this, this single post 
mounting and completely changed it. And uh, we took it back again, and it was brilliant. It, you know, no problem at all. Perfect fly over the wing at all times. Now, so that was the first time I'd really seen and got something out of a wind tunnel test. I'm not saying that it actually did all that on track, you know, that the, the, the car would suddenly lose a third of its downforce at the back. I'm not saying it did that because you had variations in, um, uh, you know, airspeed on the track versus airspeed in the tunnel and blockage and uh, all sorts of things that we were yet to really get into. But it did guide me to do a better single post mount. So that was really when... I suppose when the wind tunnel started to produce stuff, and that's been about 1972, something like that. Um, so it, um, you know, and then, and then it slowly develops. And once you get into that, because um, then, then where did I go from there? Then I went to California to, yeah, to join Vels Bonelli yeah. Jones, and we were doing, well, when I went there, we were still running Andretti in Formula One, Indy cars, 5,000 cars, and so on. But again, we we did actually take the Indy car, um, the, the VPJ6, down to Atlanta, Georgia, where, where Lockheed's had a massive tunnel. I mean, literally enormous. And that thing could run up to, or oh, I think something like a 200-mile-an-hour wind speed. And we were putting the full-size car in that, um, which... Again, you know, I was collecting numbers, much more realistic numbers. They had, they had nozzles down on the on the. They didn't have a moving road, but they had nozzles blowing to try and remove the boundary layer. Um, they t advised us to put a little trip thing along the tire to mimic the sort of pressure um, distribution over the wheel, although the wheel was non-rotating. So we were starting to get better numbers, better numbers all the time. I do remember the only problem down there was I think we did it in winter time when we weren't racing, and uh, even though it was Georgia, uh, Atlanta, it, you know, which is a pretty hot place normally, it was cold enough that at those wind speed we actually had somebody sitting in the car to represent the driver with a helmet and everything. And I think that <laughs> the the wind speed produced us um, a wind chill factor of something like minus 70 or so. It's <laughs> <laughs> a very short yeah, straw. I think that might have been Fahrenheit, to be fair. But, um, yeah, the, whoever, yeah, we see, you know, the guy, <laughs> we did a run and the guy said, you know, how long is this going to take? Bloody freezing. <laughs> They're not still sitting there frozen, are they? No, we, we got him out before he went solid, yeah. <laughs> Podcast listeners can save an exclusive 10% on John Barnard's biography, The Perfect Car. Go to the Motorsport shop at motorsportmagazine.com and use the code POD10 at the checkout. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So it's, you, obviously you then sort of went back to McLaren 80 yeah. to 87. Yeah. Um, you had so much success there. What, what happened with Ron? Because it was sort of, it seemed like the dream team, more sponsorship yeah. and yeah. But obviously it's something, yeah. something happened. Um, well, it was kind of a build-up. I mean, when we started the what we called McLaren International, um, that was a combination of Project 4, Ron's team, which I joined to do the carbon monocoque, or to do a Formula 1 car, actually. I mean, there was no discussion of what that would look like. That was down to my choice, if you, or, or my thinking, if you like, how a Formula 1 car would be. So I did the monocoque, and then Marlborough came along and Team McLaren were kind of on a downward slope and Marlborough didn't reckon they were going to get out of it and we um, Ron knew John Hogan who was the sort of main guy at Marlborough at the time and one way, one thing and another Hoagie brought together Project 4 and the old Team McLaren so there were five of us, there was myself who, who were directors, five directors, and I was the technical director. There was myself, there was Ron, there was Teddy, Tyler, and uh, Ron's um, partner, Crichton Brown. And we started off like that. And it, it kind of, you know, having me having worked for Teddy um, and then coming along as technical director where I could sort of tell him what to do technically, um, was slightly a bit of a tricky situation Um, and Teddy was one of those guys who um, well he was kind of a frustrated designer you know he he was he was an intelligent guy and he'd been around racing a lot so he he was pretty good at pretty good at in setting up cars with drivers and kind of making tire choices things like that but he wasn't a designer and he wasn't actually an engineer and but he was always trying to do that and trying to get in there. And, and so it ended up in that f- 1981 where um, he was uh, race engineering um, Watty most of the time. And I was sort of doing De Cesaris and kind of oversee Watty as well. And, um, you know, Teddy was always trying to slip one in and sort of do a, you know, or, you know, I did a little trick, you know, I'm not going to say, you know, kind of thing. And I just, I said, no, nah, you know, that's that's not for me. So it, it went on like that. And then we went through 82 in much the same way. Um, although the 82 car was a pretty good car, actually, with the plastic skirts. And, and again, we, I'd managed to understand the plastic skirts really well. We We took the car down to the Michelin test track at Clermont-Ferrand and we got some really useful information off there at a long a straightaway that ran over a, uh, a balance that was set in the ground and uh, you could run over that sort of 150 mile an hour and they'd take pictures 
of the car as it ran over so you could see exactly what was you could measure the load you could see what was going on with the skirts and that taught us taught us a lot about the pla the how to use the plastic skirt so that that was quite a good car quite a good season um but then towards the end of that i you know i s was saying to ron look i you know i'm not going to carry on in this kind of environment you know i don't i don't want to be questioned i don't you know i'm you know right or wrong i'm kind of technically in charge and that's it i don't want somebody keep sort of coming and saying what about this what about that you know and ron said uh fine he said um leave it to me he said I i'm with you he said you know we'll we'll whatever it is we'll do it together so i think around about uh, well that no this is probably end of 83 something like that 83 84 and then ron did the deal with um tag and basically tag bought out my shares bought out Crichton so that left tag and ron as the shareholders of mclaren and, and they bought out teddy and tyler so teddy and tyler disappeared from the scene and it was myself and ron um and uh it worked well i mean it was a very strong combination like patrick and frank myself and ron um and it uh it it, it went on like that very successfully 1984 really successful uh 85 we won again um and then 86 um well i had a big meeting i had a, a meeting with ron just myself and ron between the end of 85 season and 86 because i sold my shares and i was no longer a shareholder although i was still a director um, and doing the same as i'd always done the power balance changed it was imperceptible it wasn't going to change it wasn't supposed to change but it does change you know if you're a shareholder or you're not a shareholder there is a difference and it's hard to you know hard to put a anything into it it's just a kind of just yeah, the feeling. way things yeah feeling so um we carried on like that and, and then i started getting these phone calls oh that's right but at the end of 85 i spoke to ron about getting a getting a raise and uh how did I, that go down <laughs> well uh, no <laughs> I, I mean similar stories before it? <laughs> it was it was it was a case of okay let me think about it um because i'd been talking to hogan at mclaren at uh, marlborough and Hogan said oh you should be getting you know x sort of thing and uh which was basically five times more than i was getting and um <laughs> Worth the question then. <laughs> yeah, and I thought, well, you know, I'm going to raise the issue. Um, so Ron said, oh, right, okay, let me think about it. So I never heard any more from him on it, and I carried on, and he carried on, and doing all our stuff. And uh, towards the middle of that year, I started getting phone calls from somebody in London. And uh, long story short, it, it was basically Ferrari headhunting me and I went to London to see this guy and there was Marco Piccinini who was Enzo's right hand man and so you know I got talking to, en to, to Marco and they were offering big numbers and I said look you know I, I don't want to go and work in Italy um, so you know it doesn't matter what you offer me I don't want to go and work there and then they came back with what about if you could set up an office in UK and I thought, hmm, that's quite interesting, you know. Um, 
work for Ferrari. I mean, you know, you're in Formula One at the end of the day. I don't care what anybody says, Ferrari's Ferrari. You know, you have to go there once. And uh, so it, it, they came back and said about opening an office. And I said, well, I can't just have an office. I can't just have a drawing board and a couple of guys. You know, that I can't operate like that. Um, I have to have uh, workshop backup because sometimes when you're doing, especially composite stuff, you need to be, you need to make one, and you either test it or you know see how it can be made, etc. It's not just like working with metal, and uh, and so we ended up producing, a, we ended up putting together a factory in in just outside uh, Guildford, where we ended up making the monocoques, the suspension, um, lots and lots of stuff. Um, and that was, you know, that was the whole involvement with Ferrari. So that went on for three years. And then, uh, well, then I got, I got headhunted again by Benetton, which was a big mistake. I shouldn't have been enticed there. Um, and ended up going back to Ferrari. Mm. Why, why, why was Benetton such a, such a mistake? Because um, I got headhunted by Briatore, who'd just not long been on board at Benetton. And um, they, I, they did this deal where I was theoretically owning 50% of the team and we were gonna build a whole new factory of which I would own uh, a big portion. And on top of that, I was gonna take a decent salary, not what I was getting at Ferrari, but a decent salary and so I thought, you know, this is, I now don't have to travel to Italy every couple of weeks. I'm back in UK. If we're going to build a new factory, I can build it down nearer where I live, down in Surrey. And, uh, and so that's how it started. And then it developed along, I mean, having said that, we ended up... Um, winning two races in the first year I was there, eight, uh, which was uh, uh, 1990. Um, they went, ended up winning two races, I think, at the end of the season, PK and, uh, um, who was it? Moreno was second in Japan. No, it was, uh, yeah, no, uh, PK won, I think. Yeah, PK won both, in yeah, the, in Japan, 1990, yeah. yeah. And, um, and then I started doing a new car for 91 at the same time as we built a, 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 a kind of a small factory or we took a building over it in Godalming where I put together a proper drawing office with, oh, I can't remember, quite a few designers. I then introduced calculation department, um, aerodynamics department. We, we had a deal with, um, uh, we had a wind tunnel. Benetton were using a, a, a really Mickey Mouse wind tunnel at Shrivenham. The, um, army place where it was a very small, I think, quarter-scale tunnel, open jet tunnel. I think it was all made of plywood. They weren't, they didn't, they weren't able to adjust the car while it was while the wind was running. And we changed all that. I came along and I changed all that, and uh, immediately started to give much more useful, you know, aerodynamic numbers. Um, but. Uh, I kind of, Rory was there and was still there penning the, the, the cars and I was kind of overseeing. And I guess, I don't know, I don't know whether he didn't like my approach, my, you know, getting involved or, 
or what, I don't know, but they left and one or two guys left. And uh, it, 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 then we developed, we had a, I'm trying to think, yeah, that's right, we, had, we got a, found a wind tunnel at Farnborough that we then built a rolling road for, a much bigger, better wind tunnel than they've been using. And so it was developing all that stuff, upgrading all the equipment, bringing in five axis machines, and all the, all the, you know, setting up a proper test team at Guildford, Godalming, and uh, just, you know, lots of stuff on top of doing a new car. Um, and it, this went on for a while, and there was a deal in the contract, there was a clause in my contract where Benetton was supposed to sign off the accounts. And once they signed off the accounts, the contract as written and discussed was, you know, signed, sealed and delivered. And we'd gone through 1990, we'd won some races, uh, we'd started to invest and upgrade everything and upgrade everything. And by, I don't know, January, February, March, something like that of 91, my contract was still not, I had still hadn't signed off the accounts. And uh, there was stuff going on with the accounts that was not illegal but it wasn't particularly you know the right way to do things and I spoke to my solicitor and said Michael you know I'm supposed to sign the accounts off as the main director who's responsible for spending all this stuff what do I do you know he said well you can't sign them if if the auditors I think it was Arthur Anderson they wouldn't sign the accounts off because they were trying to put stuff in that you know, like swap stuff between one year and another, and Arthur Anderson didn't want to sign it. And, I, and, and my sister said, oh, you shouldn't really sign it if they won't sign it. So this went on, and Benison hadn't signed off the accounts. You know, they wouldn't sign off the 1990 accounts. So the, the deal never actually got ratified, and in the end I got pissed off and started going over to see Luciano... Uh, 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 the boss, um, not Luciano, was the son, but um, I've forgotten, forgotten his name. The, the number one Benetton guy, anyway. Um, and I went and sat down, and you know, it was obviously they had no intention of ratifying the contract and so on. And so, Briatori came along afterwards and basically said, you know, they want you gone. Um, and that was it. it. I wasn't towing the line, basically because I was stupidly reading the contract, but I should have remembered I was dealing with Italians where, you know, contracts are kind of a proximate guide to what they want. You know, it's kind of, if they don't want it like that, it doesn't happen like that. We, we were, from what you'd seen at Benetton, I mean, this, this was before they'd become a proper powerhouse. Could you see the potential there? Well, I thought there was, yes. And, and I mean, I have to say, you know, we'd, we'd, we'd built up, started to build a really strong technical team, we, you know, we'd increased the drawing office dramatically. We'd brought in calculation departments. And we, I, had brought all this stuff in. We'd set up this factory down at Godalming with a, a big drawing office attached uh, where we ran uh, test cars from. And, you know, we'd brought along composites and five axes. I mean, really, really upgraded it technically um, and the 91 car, uh, the, the, the 191, um, was fundamentally a good car. I, I mean, it, it got some bad press because uh, 
I had decided that we didn't have the technical capability to do a paddle shift box, so we put in a, 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 a manual box uh, for the 91 car, and I wanted to do a new box to go with it, and so we did a new gearbox and everything for the 91. So the 91 car was all new, completely new. Um, and uh, it, it became, you know, it's another one of those areas where it was just me and I was doing and I was doing it all, pulling it all together, pulling all together the technical side, specking machinery, specking buildings, sitting on top of a car design, um, new wind tunnel, you know, it just was huge. And uh and the ninety one car was the the basis of, you know, what well uh, Schumacher came along at the end of that 91 season um, and everybody, you know, we all know what Schumacher was like um, and um, uh, it, you know, it just it was the basis for them to go forward, let's put it that way. They then took the 91 car, modified it, modified it, modified it. So, yeah, I mean, it was, you know, it, it did them a lot of favours and didn't really do me any favours. Mm. From only £3 for three months, you can get unlimited access to all of Motorsport Magazine's content, both online and in print. To sign up, just go to motorsportmagazine.com forward slash trial. There's, looking through your career, there's, you know, there are, sort of, there are big, well-known highlights. There's the first carbon fibre monocoque that's yeah. still being used today. Yeah. Um, there's the first semi-automatic gearbox of Ferrari that is basically the foundation of what is still being used today. The Coke yeah. bottle side pods, again, yeah. the foundation of yeah. what is still being used today. And it's amazing for one, one designer to come up with things that just have that long longevity in Formula I'd One. I'd like to go back to the Chaparral 2K yeah. as well. <laughs> yes, well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and there's a, there's a question here, um, if I can actually find it. Uh, it's from Vladimir. Um, dear Mr. Barnard, uh, what was the solution for the semi-automatic gearbox reliability which let Mansell uh, get to the finish in the 89 French GP after the succession of retirements. So I think here, because obviously you got a lot of flack, especially from Italian press, yeah. because the gearbox was failing, but actually yeah. the battery couldn't give enough power to this new electric gearbox. Which, yeah. Yeah, I yeah. It, yeah, basically, uh, uh, we had all this terrible press. I mean, we went testing in, in, uh, in, in Rio a couple of weeks before the race, and we had a really, it was quick. But reliability was awful. And of course, the first thing that stopped working was the gearbox. So everything in the press was, oh, gearbox, disaster, gearbox, disaster. Um, and this is after um, I had had a stand-up argument with the guy from Fiat who'd come in to take over Ferrari, because don't forget, Enzo had died in 88. And, uh, and, and this guy had come along and literally saw himself as the replacement for Enzo. I mean, he was a fiat hierarchy guy. And so he was absolutely terrified that this wasn't going to work. And, um, but, you know, I kind of, I exercised my authority as... It's a very polite according, moment. <laughs> according, according, <laughs> according to the contract and insisted that it was going to go in the car and it wasn't going to go start life with a mechanical gearbox. Um, and 
but we went testing and the reliability was awful and so on. So we got to the first race and uh, uh, it was, I mean, I've probably heard the story before, but um, I mean, our team manager guy was Cesare Fiorio at the time. And I remember Cesare coming to me before the race and we'd been practicing and said, uh, he said, you know, what's the chances of finishing? I said, not, not very good, is it? He said, uh, do you think we should put half a tank of fuel and, you know, make a good show and then sort of, it'll, you know, it probably won't <coughs> last anyway. So, you know, I said, well, I don't know if Cesare, you, you never know your luck. Oh, let's fill it up. Let's make, you know, let's just go for a race. So that's what happened because Mansell won, which completely changed the whole scene in Italy um, and uh, it, it but it turned out after a, a lot more a lot of problems that most of the problems were coming from the fact that the alternator on the engine which supplied the power to the battery um, well the battery wasn't big enough to stand up on its own I mean they're not like car batteries they're like you know little tiny things so once the alternator stopped working, then everything stopped, and the alternator was driven off the front of the crankshaft with a with a belt. Um, and the crank, the engine at that time was a four-bearing main engine, and the, the the eventually they did some high-speed photography on the dyno, and they noticed that the obviously the crankshaft was whipping, and uh, and the and the pulley on the front of the crankshaft that was driving this belt started to started to sort of oscillate and it would throw the belt or break the belt or something and then the alternator stopped all the power's gone so you know the first thing happens gearbox stops and that was then discovered and corrected and then you know things started to move on and 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 get better but um that's that was why the reliability issue um, but it was very difficult to define initially what it was. Was there any particular reason that it lasted in Rio where it wouldn't last any other race <laughs> the first half of the season? Well, I guess I'm basically a good guy and I guess God was looking over <laughs> at the time, so yeah. <laughs> was it, I mentioned some of the, you know, some of your designs there. Are there any that you look back on and put slightly ahead of the others in terms of personal satisfaction? Personal satisfaction was probably the chaparral. I mean, it happened, there were literally, we had a, I drew it in my dad's front room and uh, I had a drawing board and, and that's where I worked. I'd m persuaded Gordon Kimball to come from America who'd worked for me at Bell's Pennelli Jones and he worked up at Bracing Fabrications where it was made, that was an aluminium monocoque, not a not carbon then. And um, I was sketching, dream, you know, drawing all this stuff, drawing all the big bits and main bits. I would do a scheme, give it to Gordon, he would detail the bits and pieces. And then eventually I got the help of a third guy, briefly, to help me draw up bodywork and stuff. And uh, and that, that was it. That was We drew the whole car, front to back. Um, I even drew the exhaust pipes. Um, literally drew them out on a drawing board. And... Um, uh, you know that I think I started that in like September '78, and like, we took it to Ontario Speedway, the first car, maybe a couple of weeks before the beginning of May, um, um, and '89. Uh, uh, sorry, '79, and um, 
and it just worked it was just worked out of the box i mean it, everything went together uh all the bits we drew everything fitted it all bolted together you didn't have to remake anything i did the body work up at specialized moldings that all went together um it just it just it just all went together it went on the track al drove it and just like wow you know, this thing's different. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's quite a nice question here from Anthony Jenkins, actually, um, saying, uh, I'm not alone in thinking your Chaparral IndyCar of 7980 uh, was the most beautiful IndyCar ever. Can a beautiful race car be designed in an aero screen slash halo era? Well, um, that the only aerodynamics that that car ever saw was what went on in my head. I mean, that never saw a wind tunnel. It never... You know, until you, it went on there's no, there's no wind tunnel in your dad's front room. Well, probably a wind tunnel between my ears. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. <laughs> but, um, yeah, no, I mean, that, that was me saying, that looks right. And, I mean, Lotus were doing the... I hadn't seen it when I did the Chaparral, but Lotus were doing the 79. They had done the 78, which was what got me thinking about the ground effect. And I remember talking to Patrick Head, who'd been actually looking at some ground effect stuff in the tunnel. Uh, I think at Imperial College or something for on his Formula One car. So, you know, it was there. Um, don't pretend to have invented ground effects, but I do claim to put the first proper ground effects on an Indy car. And, you know, I just drew it. I drew the tunnel coming all the way to the back. I, I, I just, I did what I thought should be right. And... Uh, and it turned out it was right. I mean, what it what wasn't right was the fact that we never made the underbodies and things strong enough for the for for the forces that was going going onto the underbody because we were still working with fiberglass. hadn't got round to working with carbon yet, so all the underbody was fiberglass, and it needed a lot, lot, lot of strengthening and stiffening. Um, but it, it 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 you know it yeah. I mean it. It just worked, and, and it was mechanically a good car. Um. Now, before we go on to the next question, I should remind you that we have a motorsport shop that is absolutely packed to the rafters with signed memorabilia, posters, books, models, and everything you could ever want from the world of motoring or motorsport. Have a look at motorsportmagazine.com forward slash shop. What's more, as a podcast listener, you get a 10% discount on everything in the shop. This is valid until the end of July, and please use the code POD10. That's POD10. Do you think it's, do you think it's possible to, to design a beautiful Formula One car or Indy car nowadays with the, with the rules as they are? Without all the, all the testing stuff, um, um, you know, uh, um, no, I don't, no. I think you need, you need, you need all your computer stuff, you need your, aerodynamic computerizations and you need to know that what you've got is correct um, and you just need all that you you couldn't do it now you couldn't just walk up take a look at the other Formula 1 cars sit down and say yeah I'm going to do it like that because that's a, that looks right to me uh, it's, couldn't, it's not possible there's, uh, there's another um, question here from Lawrence uh, Lynn um, how did Enzo treat you, and how different was he uh, and from Ron Dennis? 
Well, um, the first thing is Endo spoke Italian and I spoke English, so that <laughs> didn't... <laughs> so the interpreter was, was Piccinini. Um, but uh, Enzo kind of, you know, he brought me in there and Enzo's way of operating was to kind of pit people against each other and see, you know, who was going to come out of a knife fight <laughs> at least cuts, you know what I mean? So uh, that was kind of Enzo. Um, what I think I was really brought in because he realised that you couldn't do it all with the engine. And, you know, Ferrari was an engine-based operation. And uh, he brought me in because he'd been watching the McLaren and, you know, we obviously, you could see, we knew what we were doing chassis-wise, aerodynamically and chassis-wise. And so that was fundamentally why I came, why he got me in there. Um, but I do remember having been there, I think the first year I was there, and uh, I think it was the, 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 the Sunday Times sent a journalist to follow me around for a week. Um, I got talking to this guy, sort of, and, you know, a lot of it was supposed to be off the record, but I remember saying something like, um, well, you know, the stupid thing to me, because I, I had a, I, I'd been given a Ferrari road car to use, and uh, it was it was a Mondial, and uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't even the, the Mondial T, it was the first Mondial. And I just remember talking to this guy and saying, you know, the trouble is, I said, when I leave the garage in the morning, I can't get first gear because, you know, if the oil's cold, you can't get in first gear, so you start in second. I said, I can't pull out of my drive without reversing up because there's not enough steering lock. There's no, there's no, there's no, uh, there's, there's no ABS on the brakes. I said, but I can get ABS on a Fiat Chroma, you know, no problem at all. And I was going on like that. I said, and then I've, I vetoed, I, I looked at his uh, article before it went in the in the in the magazine, and uh, I thought, well, take that out, take that out, take that out. And of course, when he went back in the magazine, a lot of it, a lot of it was in, and the factory, uh, the road car factory, saw some of this stuff. It wasn't all in there, but there were bits and pieces, and they went storming off to Enzo, and you know there was almost going to be a strike in the road car, and also Enzo got me in and said. Through through Marco, look, you know, um, you've got to say something. You can't say this, you know. You've got to fix it, kind of thing. You've got to say this. so. I I made some statement, sort of denying that it was all. It was you know as bad as this, or you know, it's not what I'd said, and it was misinterpreted, and all this kind of thing. And um, so I remember, I remember that that caused quite a big stir. But uh, there was a a kind of even though I didn't speak Italian, he couldn't speak to me. There was a bit of a smirk on his face when he, you know, when he was sort of going through it, you know, and uh, he was he because he, he knew, you know, he he knew that the problems with the road cars. I mean, and and they, you know, they got better and better and better. And I mean, they're very they're excellent road cars now. I mean, I think the first one that probably turned the corner for them was the three five five. I think it was something like that, which was not a pretty good road car. But yeah, I mean, it, it, you know that. Was so there was no real relationship with Enzo, and of course, he was there. Eighty, I joined at the end of '86. He was there through '87, and we won a couple of races at the end of '87. So we turned the corner. So you know, he, he's 
he got he must have got a lot of criticism from the Italian press to not only employ another Englishman because Harvey Possewaite was there before me, but to actually allow this Englishman to build this facility in 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 England, you know, and, th and then ban drinking at lunch. Sorry? And then ban drinking at lunch. Well, absolutely. And, 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 and slug off the road cars. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that, was another, <laughs> that was another story. Because it was actually Marco Piccinini that came to me and said, what would you do at McLaren? What do you do at lunchtime at McLaren? I said, well, I, you know, because there's all stuff to do on the car between practice and qualifying. And the guys would have a sandwich and just kind of spend 10 minutes, you know, sort of eating a sandwich somewhere and, you know, and then get on with the, with the stuff. Yes, he said, I thought so. He said, um, do you think we should have a, we should do something about, because they used to have a sit-down lunch with tablecloths and, you know, wine on the table and so on. Quite right, too. And it, yeah, <laughs> very civilised, yeah, of course, you know, but nothing to do with Formula One, but very civilised. And he said, do you think, you know, do you think we should change? And I said, well, I, yeah, I said, I think we should, Marco. I think, you know, it's really not a good way to go about Formula One. Leave it to me, he said, leave it to me. So next thing I know, that was all banned and it was my fault. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I thought, okay, I see how you do it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There it's, we are, we are uh, slowly running, running out of time, but I did, did just want to ask you about your thoughts on current Formula One and, and looking at what, it's, yeah. what we're looking at maybe this season and, and beyond. It's changed so dramatically. Yeah. Um, I suppose the easiest way to narrow down the question, if you were in charge of Formula One with a blank sheet of paper, what would, yeah, what would you do? What's the, what's the solution? You, I mean, you have to address, I think you have to address the climate we're in, which is about, you know, global warming, et cetera, et cetera, fossil fuels bad, you know, electricity good and so on. I know that Formula One have made, I mean, if you look at the power unit today, the power they produce from the fuel they use is a huge step from when we started using turbos back in the 80s. Huge step. But it's still using fossil fuel. And it's somehow or other, that's got to be either reduced dramatically or there's got to be more hybrid technology or... God forbid, maybe even move to an electric formula, but something that allows development to go. Because the thing that Formula One can do is accelerate development, even for big companies. You can accelerate development with racing. Um, the problem is now, it's become such a, an enormous operation. You've got this, this issue of budget. And, you know, pretty much, unless you've got a manufacturer behind you now, you're not going to do it. I mean, you look at Red Bull. Red Bull switched to Honda because that was their only way of getting a manufacturer behind them for the engine. And I suppose you look at it, you can say, well, it's paying off. Um, I don't know how you wind the clock back in terms of expenditure. I mean, I know they talk about cutting budgets and all the rest of it, but it's a bit like MotoGP. I've done my time in MotoGP. And you've got the big companies, Honda and Yamaha and so on, who are testing and R&Ding stuff in Japan that is fundamentally nothing to do with the racing budget, but it's all, refl it's all coming back to racing. So how you actually separate what a manufacturer does for a road car development 
that can then be swung to Formula One, I don't know. So I'm, I don't, I'd like to know how the budgets can be controlled because I'm not convinced they can be. Um, so budget-wise, you've kind of got yourself into this this huge, enormous scene. Um, I think you've just got to let. You can't. You cannot pin them down too hard with rules, with with technical rules, because technical rules tend to stifle innovation. And I do think that you have to have innovation in Formula One, otherwise the hardened fans of Formula One lose interest. You know, if all the cars end up looking the same because everybody's using pretty much the same aerodynamic program and pretty much the same engine technology and the same engine architecture and so on, um, you know, and the tyre companies say, this is your weight distribution you need in the car and so on and so on and so on, you will end up with pretty much the same car. Uh, you might have a front wing flap that's got another twist on that's, you know, a couple of points better than the other guy. Another few thousand pounds more. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, that's that's cost this army of 20 aerodynamicists, you know, three months to come up with kind of thing. Um, I just don't think that's attractive to the fans. Um, I mean, these to me now, these cars are incredibly ugly. They've got the halo, which, okay, you know, you can argue it one way or another. Um, but they've got so many bits and pieces and flips and tabs and bits and bobs. I mean, you know, that's come about because the way they, the, 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 the teams just constantly develop and they, they, you know, if that little tab is worth 0.01 of a, you know, of a of a, a percentage in downforce, it goes on, you know, and, and and so you end up with these things that I think are looking terrible, covered in bits and pieces. Every race I've seen, there's a there's a a kerfuffle in the first lap, and somebody loses a front wing or loses an end plate or loses a number of their tabs and bits and bobs, which I assume I assume hurts their aerodynamic performance. Although quite often you don't see it, <laughs> yeah, they still sort of go marching around with a. You know, bit hanging off the front wing end plate or something. Um, but it, you get these things that are so sensitive now that, you know, wheel-to-wheel -wheel racing becomes, uh, you know, a real um, sort of 50-50. You know, am I going to get away with it or not? Um, and, and I just think that needs to change. I think, you know, there needs to be more innovation allowed and more... Um, just something to give the fans a bit more technical interest. Do you feel fortunate in a way that you kind of went through a period where it wasn't a technical high water, as, as, as sort of a technically, it was sort of a high watermark period, late 80s going into the early 90s, with the creative freedom for ABS, traction control, and all of that stuff? Yes, I think so. I mean, I think, you know, where I started, um, uh, it, uh, there was a lot of it was done by straight from here what I thought was the right way to do something. Um, and there, But technically, I was allowed to make innovations. I mean, you mentioned the big innovation. There are lots of small innovations. I mean, the whole idea of the, 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 the little short front torsion bar instead of the road spring, all that kind of thing that I introduced on the 89 Ferrari. I mean, little things like that all the way through the car um, that gave me great satisfaction to come up with a, with a solution. Um, and implement it, um, but 
these days, the, the rules, I mean, the rules are so tight that, that I don't know where you would find that door that you could open to give you an, another path. I mean, I've, I kind of think about it. I think we know, is there an aerodynamic door that you could open that would just allow you to go off in another direction? Initially, it might not be any better than what you've got. Might be as good, hopefully as good. And if it wasn't as good, you wouldn't do it. But if it was as good as what other people would got, but it was different, sometimes it's worth doing because you like the like the paddle shift gearbox. You can't foresee all the advantages. You know, like paddle shift gearbox. I mean, the first thing that came up, I remember somebody saying, "Well, great because." Now they can't over rev the engine. The drivers can't over rev the engine. It's going to save us a fortune in bent valves and, you know, messed up engines. So you never think about that, but these things come about because of it. And it's like aerodynamics. If you can find a new way to, you know, another direction, maybe you're not getting a big advantage at the beginning, but maybe something comes out of that. Say, so, oh, hang on a minute. Didn't think about that, but that can lead to something else, something better. Um, I just think, I think you've got to allow it. You've got, you know, you've got to let this stuff go on. I mean, the problem with allowing too much um, freedom on the engine side is that that gets very expensive to do, to introduce different stuff because it costs a lot to build new crankshafts and new blocks and so on. And then it costs a lot to put them through all the testing that's required. Because nowadays you've got the rules about how long it's got to last. You know, if you change a gearbox too soon, you're at the back of the grid. I'm not convinced about that, and I'm absolutely against all this DRS business, all this drag reduction. If you're going to pass a car, pass him. You know, if you're quicker than him, you're going to get passed. You might have to fight for it. You might have to go into a corner side by side. But this down the straight, you know, suddenly you've got seven or eight kilometers an hour better than the other guy because somebody's flicked a switch. Oh, come on. That's not passing a car, is it? <laughs> I think music to all motorsport readers' ears. That Certainly to mine. I, um, I wanted to... Uh, we can come to you, Simon, after this, but I wanted to, um, just at the end here, uh, do a very quick game of word association. So <laughs> just uh, so there's a few names here and bits and pieces. Um, to say whatever first comes into your head. Uh, we'll start with Ron Dennis. Brilliant at getting money. Patrick Head. Uh, a lifelong friend. Um, I owe him a dinner. <laughs> <laughs> Ferrari. Uh, politics. The Italian press. Uh, get them on your side, because <laughs> if you don't, <laughs> you've had it. Excellent. Uh, Flavio Briatore. Hmm. <laughs> okay, we can leave that. And then... Um, Quickly, what do you miss most and what do you miss least about Formula One? I miss the technical challenge. I miss I miss the I miss I miss the technical side. Um but what I don't miss is the size of them. I mean I I think if you were well, if you're technical director now in a Formula One team I don't know how many times Adrian knew he gets up, up against the drawing board or actually is able to stand there and do something, you know, think about something completely new. I'm going to do a new car. I suspect not very often because I suspect he's got this vast array of people now that he just says, 
yeah, let's have a look at this, let's have a look at that. You know, he's still tapping the rudder, but there are lots of teams I could not tell you who the technical director was. I mean, I have no idea who steers the ship at Mercedes or, uh, you know, all these other big teams, even McLaren, I couldn't tell you who steers the ship there now. Um, and that I, I, I find that disappointing, really. Well, Simon, have you, do you want to fire in with a question before yeah, we, before um, we close? Nothing, well, just uh, one more on the word association. Uh, British press. Uh, generally fair. Um, generally. Generally <laughs> fair. Um, we're getting into an era in British press now where lots of them that write in the books basically have no idea what went on more than 10 or 15 years. You know, if it was 10 or 15 years ago, they probably don't know what went on. I don't know who is involved, don't know the people. I mean, I'm not a networking type of guy. Um, and I suspect half of them wouldn't even know who I was, to be honest with you. Well, so, but that's just my age. <laughs> there's plenty of our readers that do. Uh, John, it has been absolutely fascinating. Thank you so much. Thank uh, you, yeah, Simon, thank you for, for joining us. Alan, thank you very much for recording, as always. Thank you very much for watching. Thank you very much for listening. We'll see you again soon. Bye-bye for now. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.